If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Zechariah chapter 9. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold... The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah. And Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. 
Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. O Lord our God, we ask this morning that you would feed us by means of your word. That by the power of your spirit, the author of this word, you would equip us to understand. Illumine your word on our hearts and our minds. That we would learn more of you. That we would love the Lord Jesus Christ more. And that we would serve you in all humility. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. A very long time ago, and I am starting to approach the age where I can say a very long time ago, I lived in the city of Chicago. And occasionally I would go downtown and would see some sights or do some shopping or meet some friends. And when you are downtown in a very large city, it is very difficult to know where you are. This was a long time ago, before the days of GPSs and phones. Young people, you used to have to walk and look at signs. And you would not know how far you would have to go and do you turn left or do you turn right because there's so much that's crowded in a downtown city and there are people going, bustling to and fro, shoving you, bumping into you, and cars whizzing around. And it's very difficult to understand the lay of the land. But I also did something that maybe others of you have done when you've been in a city and experienced a similar kind of hustle and bustle. I was able at one point in time to go up to the very top of the Sears Tower and to look out over the city. And from the top of the tower, I could see the entirety of the city. I could see the suburbs. From the top of the Sears Tower, you can see Indiana. You can see very, very far. That's what it's like to be at the top of a skyscraper, to be at the top of a high mountain. You can see and survey all of the land around you. And that is what we are beginning to see here this morning in Zechariah 9. It's what we're used to seeing at time from the prophets in the Old Testament. You see, at the beginning of the book of Zechariah, the first six chapters... Zechariah was very focused on the immediate, on the here and the now. He was speaking to the people of Israel, and you could almost feel him point over toward the Temple Mount and say, right over there is where you are building the house of the Lord. As they were speaking to him about the difficulties that they were having, you could almost picture him walking in and out of their homes, telling them what would come next week, tomorrow. And then in chapters 7 and 8, we saw this kind of a transition from the immediate to something a little bit more general as they asked questions about what true religion is in the light of their fasting. But now, beginning with chapter 9, we are on that mountaintop, in that top floor of the skyscraper, looking out and surveying over the vast areas of history. The prophet now is going to look very far into the future. He's going to do what we expect of a traditional prophecy. To tell us what will come. And how that affects how we should think and live today. You know, it is interesting 
that because chapters 9 and following are so different in tone and in language from the first six chapters, many commentators have come to the conclusion that Zechariah did not write the whole book of Zechariah. That perhaps even this latter part is uninspired. That it's not really a part of the Bible that we can trust. Especially as it thinks about prophecies. Because I need to be honest with you, the default position of a modern commentator is the closer the prophecy comes to history, the less they believe it's a prophecy. Now, I know that seems odd. You would think a prophecy that was way off wouldn't be worth a nickel. But the way they think about it is, if the prophecy is actually accurate, then it had to be written much later as history. And they will pull up various things to try and hurt your view of Scripture and its inspiration. And there's, there's one thing here that comes up specifically with the book of Zechariah that I just want to spend a moment on here. Some look at Zechariah as not being inspired because of actually a quote from the book of Matthew. It's a quote that is familiar to you. It's a verse that would be very familiar, especially at this time of year as we approach Easter. It's Matthew 27, verses 9 and 10, where Matthew writes, Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, They took thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been sent, set by some of the sons of Israel, and they purchased a potter's field. The prophet Jeremiah. The problem comes in, And that it is actually Zechariah that speaks of the 30 pieces of silver in Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13. It talks about the 30 pieces of silver that were thrown down in the house of the Lord. The 30 pieces of silver Matthew is referring to is obviously the bribe price to Judah. So where are we left here? Is Matthew out to lunch? Is Zechariah uninspired? Well, what's happening here is something that happens commonly in the Scriptures. Virtually every objection to the Scriptures can be solved with a little bit of elbow grease and some work. You see, Matthew actually is talking about two things. 30 pieces of silver and a field. And the field is mentioned by the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 32. And the silver is mentioned in the prophet Zechariah. And so what Matthew does is what you would expect... He cites the prophet that most people know, Jeremiah. Not the lesser known, because he's calling from both authors. Mark does the same thing in Mark 1. He makes a quotation from Isaiah and Malachi, and he only cites Isaiah, because not everybody knows who Malachi is. Everyone knows Isaiah. All of this to say that we can trust the Word of God, and we can specifically trust the Word of God here in Zechariah, that it was delivered by God to the prophet and from the prophet to us so that we would know the truth. And the truth of what we are going to look at here this morning is the king. The king who is coming. And we'll see this king come in three ways. First, he comes with judgment. Then he comes with righteousness. And then finally, he comes with deliverance. So let's enter into now Zechariah and his prophecy. 
Chapter 9 begins differently than any of the other chapters we have seen before. It begins, the burden of the word of the Lord. Some translations will translate this, the oracle of the word of the Lord. They mean the same thing. It is a word from God that describes judgment, heaviness, something that brings accountability from God to those who hear. And this oracle or burden in the first eight verses begins to read like a military campaign. Do you see this? In verse 1, it is against the land of Hadrach, which is north of the city of Damascus. And then it comes to Damascus. And then it moves further south to Hamath, and continues south to Tyre and Sidon. And then finally in the very south, almost near Egypt, to Philistia, the cities of Philistia, of Ashkelon and Gaza and Akron, And Ashdod. And so, what is happening here is God is describing a conquest that He will make because He is keenly aware of the nations. Zechariah tells us in verse 1 that the eye of the Lord is on mankind and on the tribes of Israel. You see, the Lord is not ignorant of the nations and what they have been doing. This is, of course, the modus operandi of all of the nations of all of the times. The nations in the world today simply assume that God is ignoring them and that they can do whatever they want with impunity. That there will never be any judgment that will come to America for the tens of millions upon millions of children who have been aborted. That there will never be judgment that will come upon Europe for forsaking the faith. That there will never be judgment that will come upon Africa or Asia because God is asleep at the switch. He's ignoring them. But you see here, Zechariah reminds us that God is completely aware of what the nations are doing and that He will come first and foremost in judgment. And this conquest that the Lord will bring about is quite like the conquest described in Joshua's day, except for from the other direction from north to south, instead of from south to north. But it is not going to be like Joshua's conquest, which was incomplete, in which the Israelites came in and did not drive out all the nations. Specifically, we are told in Joshua 13, they did not conquer the towns of Philistia. That they settled in among the nations and took up their habits of idolatry and intermarriage and all of these other problems. No, now the Lord will wipe the slate clean. The conquest will be complete. He is rewriting history. But the interesting thing about this is that this prophecy is uncannily like the military maneuvers of Alexander the Great. So much so that those who do not believe that the campaigns of Alexander the Great fulfill this prophecy, believe that this passage was written after Alexander lived. Because this is exactly the route that Alexander took against these cities. He came and he fought the Persians at the Battle of Issus. And then instead of turning east toward the capital of Persia, he went directly south along this route and conquered each of these cities. Each of these cities that thought that they were impregnable, that they could never be defeated, 
Let me give you just one example here from the text. Zechariah tells us that the city of Tyre was wise and had built a rampart and heaped up silver and gold like we would see mud in the backyard. Tyre was a city that had great technological advances, especially with ships and naval maneuvers. And what they actually did was they moved their city from the mainland to an island so it would be more secure. And they built walls around their city on this island that were 150 feet high. Let that sink in. You can imagine why they were proud of themselves and thought no one could defeat them. As a matter of fact, the Assyrians tried. For five years, they laid siege to the city and then left in defeat. The Babylonians didn't learn that lesson and they came and they laid siege to Tyre for 13 years and left in defeat. So, as Alexander comes down marching upon them, you can imagine what they're expecting. But Alexander is in God's providence bringing about God's will. Because you see, if we believe that God is in control of providence, then God is in control of history, even if history doesn't know it. Alexander did not say to himself, I'm going to fulfill Zechariah 9. He didn't say to himself, I'm going on a war for the Lord our God. No, he had his own reasons, but God was using him as an instrument. And as he comes to Tyre, he begins to take all that is left over of the old city. Stones, wood, etc. And he builds a land bridge out to the island of Tyre. And he conquers it and completely destroys it in seven months. Completely unthinkable at the time. Except to the prophet Zechariah. Because he knew that's what would happen. He knew that Tyre would fall despite all their power and all their wealth. Because God had decreed it. All those that are proud are cast down by the Lord. Now there's a warning here in this prophecy. And the warning is, is that we too can think that we can get away with things. We may not build 150 foot walls. We may not live on an island. But we think there are things that we can get away with because we have in the past. We can lie to our parents because they're not smart enough to figure it out. We can be lazy at work because we can get away with it. We can put certain things in front of our eyes because nothing bad has happened to us. You see, we can easily have the same sort of mentality that we are invulnerable, that God is not paying attention to us, and that that's good because we can do what we want. You see, are you counting this morning on getting away with things? Are you leaving your sin in place because you think God does not want to deal with it? You see, there's a certainty of judgment here described by Zechariah. It's so certain that those who felt that there was no answer for them, that there was no way that they would ever be harmed, they are blotted out in the blink of an eye when the Lord sets his mind to it. There's certainty in judgment. But there's something else here we see in these first eight verses, specifically verses 7 and 8. We see also hope in the midst of judgment. 
Start by looking with me at verse 8. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard, so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them, for now I see with my own eyes. In the midst of this judgment, God gives hope to His people. Now, let's go back to Alexander. Alexander is going, conquering everything in his sight, winning every battle possible, going down the Mediterranean Sea on the eastern edge of the Middle East. Now, you know what else is there besides Damascus, besides Philistia, besides Tyre? It's Jerusalem and Judea. But the interesting fact of history is that Alexander did not conquer Jerusalem. He did not wipe out the Jews. There is a story that comes to us from antiquity that as he was approaching Jerusalem, the Israelites opened up their gates and dressed in their finery, including all of the priests and all of their holy robes. And Alexander came into the city and bowed down before the name of God. His second in command was furious and said the ancient Greek equivalent of, Are you nuts? We're the ones beating everyone. Why would you bow down? And it's reported that Alexander said that he was bowing before the one who came to him in a dream and had promised him victory over the Persians. Now, whether that is exactly the truth or not, it's not inspired scripture. The one thing we do know is that Jerusalem was not harmed, attacked, or raised to the ground by Alexander. That God stood in the way and protected that city of all of the cities from the conquering hero. But there's not just hope for the people of God in the midst of judgment. Do you see what verse 7 tells us? There's actually hope for the nations in the midst of God's judgment. Look at verse 7. He's speaking of Philistia and he says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. You see, as the Philistines are being conquered, God is not just wiping them out, he is cleansing them. What is being referred to here of the blood being taken from the teeth is the Philistines' practice of eating meat with the blood in it and eating unclean animals, both things of which were forbidden in the Old Testament by the people of God. And what God is saying here is, I am going to change the Philistines. I'm going to take the filth out of their mouth and I'm going to make them like my people. They will be like a clan of my people. I will make them like the Jebusites. The Jebusites were the people who lived in Jerusalem. And as David conquered Jerusalem, they stayed and were amalgamated and incorporated into the people of God. You see, what Zechariah is saying here is that God goes so far in his judgment as to bring the outsider, the enemy, into his people. What great hope that is. Aren't you glad that that's how God works? Because if that wasn't how he worked, virtually every one of us would not be sitting in this room now. Because we all come from nations and peoples who were hostile to God, whether from Europe or from Africa or from Asia. 
or from the Americas, all places that were not a part of the people of God. And now when God comes in His judgment to purify His people, He brings the nations in. There's hope in the midst of judgment. The second way that the king comes is he comes in righteousness. And we see this in verses 9 and 10 and following. And the first thing we notice is the character of the king. Who the king is. Now, how do we know that this king comes? We know that it is not just through the coming of the king... He's not just any kind of ruler, but he's a very specific kind of king. And we know this because even if you weren't sure who Zechariah was, if it wasn't a part of your daily Bible reading, if you've never heard a sermon series on Zechariah, you know this verse. Especially at this time of year, approaching Easter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. You all know that from the gospel writers. They quote this verse to describe the entry of our Lord Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And in doing so, we understand the quote because it applies to the character of Jesus Christ. He is first and foremost, he is righteous. He lives with integrity. He brings justice to his people. And he alone is the one who is pleasing in God's sight. There is only one exception to Paul's statement. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one is righteous. Mother Teresa is not righteous. Your saintly grandmother is not righteous. Your pastor is not righteous. The only one who is righteous is Jesus. He is the only one who has never sinned in thought, word, or deed. He fits this description perfectly. He lived a perfect life, what we call the active obedience of Jesus Christ. He kept every part of the law in every way the entirety of his life. But he's not just righteous, he brings salvation. You see, it's not just that Jesus embodies a characteristic, he embodies a characteristic and he brings the blessings of that to us, to his people. He comes bringing salvation and the salvation that he earns by his character, he gives to his people, to those who trust in him, to those who put their faith in him for what he has done. That salvation comes from Jesus to believers. Thirdly, he's also humble, as the text describes. He is mounted on a donkey. Now, you understand what this means from stories you've heard from time immemorial about Easter. But just think back to every statue you have ever seen of a king or a general. What are they mounted on? A gigantic war horse, right? To show their power and their authority. Not so King Jesus. King Jesus doesn't need to stand out. He doesn't need to impress other people. He comes humbly on a donkey. That is how he enters into 
the city of Jerusalem. That is how he is described by Zechariah. And if you think about it, this embodies the life and ministry of Jesus. Who did he choose to be his ambassadors? Not the wise, not the powerful, but the simple and the poor. He did not stay with the rich and the famous, did he? Instead, he stayed with sinners and publicans. When he performed miracles of healing, he did not tout them before the world, but rather he said, speak of this to no one. He was humble. He never sought his own glory. This is the character of the king. But Zechariah goes on and continues to describe this king and his righteousness to us, not just by who he is, but by what he has done. He begins to describe the accomplishments of the king. And we begin to see this in verse 10. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. Now, do you notice a slight change here at the beginning of verse 10? Zechariah switches from the third person to the first person. And so this king who is now speaking is also God. He speaks in the first person. It's not now that God is describing the third person king. He is that king. He is the one who has the character. He is the one who will deliver. And it's interesting what his accomplishments are. If you look initially at verse 10, it strikes you as quite odd. He says, you know, my first accomplishment is, is that I disarmed my people. I got rid of all their chariots. Those are the tanks of this day. I got rid of all the war horses. That's the power of cavalry of this day. And even their bows, I took away from them. All the most powerful weapons. Now, could you imagine a politician saying today, I have strengthened the might of the Marines. I took away all their bullets, all their bayonets, and their boots. What? What is God saying here? I think what God is saying here is that the king who comes, the Lord Jesus Christ, does indeed strip everything of power away from his people. Because then they are left with only one place to lean. On Jesus. You know that's true in your own life, don't you? When you have extra money in the bank, you pray less because you feel secure. When your job is secure... You go less to the Lord with thankfulness because you just make assumptions about the way life is. The more we have to lean on, the less we are required to lean on the Lord and to trust Him. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is, I am stripping all of that away so that you will trust in me and in me alone. And then in verse 11, He begins to describe how He then delivers His people from affliction. Because of the blood of my covenant, which of course speaks of Jesus and his work, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Any Israelite would understand exactly what that would mean. Now you may not ever have been trapped in a hole eight or nine feet deep without a ladder, knowing that you could never climb your way out. But every Israelite would know the story of Joseph 
from the time that they were able to speak. They would know how horrible that is. They would know how much they need deliverance. They would have that picture in their mind. And Jesus says, I will deliver you from this affliction. And then in verse 12, he begins to describe how he brings hope again to his people. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I will restore to you double. Now, could you imagine what words of comfort that must mean to the Israelites? Can you think about those words of comfort to you today? If you're anything like anyone, you've had loss. You've lost money. You've lost friends. You've lost family members. You've lost honor. What Jesus says is, I will return you to the stronghold and I will restore to you double. He actually says something even greater than this in the New Testament. He says, if any man loses family or father or mother, I will repay him multifold what he has lost. Jesus brings hope to us. And then finally in verse 13 we see that the king who comes in righteousness will also make his people useful again. I have bent Judah as my bow and made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. He's describing how he will make the people of Israel useful again and victorious again. Now, there's a fulfillment of this as well in history. You see, the only time when the Jews fought the Greeks was after the breakup of Alexander's empire. He had three main generals, and they divided up that portion of the empire amongst themselves. And it fell by providence that the Seleucids were put in charge of Jerusalem and Judea. If the Ptolemies, who ruled Egypt, had been put in charge, they were kind of mild and meek, probably would have been... Let's get along with each other. But the Seleucids were cruel and wicked. And at one point in history, it got so bad that the Seleucid king went into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and slaughtered a pig as an offering to Jupiter. And the Israelites rose up. And against all odds, they defeated the Greeks and they were free for more than a century. Because God made them useful. And because God rose them up against the Greeks, just as he had promised 400 years before. The third thing that we see about this king that comes is not only that he comes with judgment, not only that he comes with righteousness, but that he comes with deliverance. First and foremost, we see that this deliverance is total. It is total deliverance. Look here at verse 14. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord will appear victorious in their midst. Now, the image is of what God has done in the past for them. 
the image of the Lord as their shield and protector. And the image of the whirlwind would remind them of the exodus and how the Lord led them with the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud out from their enemies of Egypt. And you see, what happens here in this deliverance is His people are changed. And He shows them the change that He brings. Look at verse 15. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine. Do you feel weak? Like you can't make a difference in the world today. Like things happening in our nation are spinning out of control and you're just one person. Do you feel like you can't even protect yourself and your family? Then there's a word here from Zechariah that God is bringing about total deliverance and that will change His people. They will go from weakness to devouring the enemy. They will go from fear to trampling down the stones of the enemy. They will go from cowering in the corner to the roar of victory. It is a complete deliverance that God brings about. And that is a picture of what Jesus is doing right now. Not in Washington, D.C., not in Brussels, not in Moscow, but in the lives and hearts of His people. You see, what Jesus does is He brings faith in God to His people. And then He continues to change us. And then as His church, we are empowered by Jesus Christ and His Word to go out into the world and to be victorious. And we can obtain the victory. We can specifically obtain the victory over sin that we so desperately need because of the power of Christ. It's not a partial deliverance. It's not something that we need to fill in the gaps of. It's a total deliverance by Jesus. Finally, the deliverance that comes is a glorious deliverance. We see this in verses 16 and 17. On that day the Lord their God will save them as the flock of His people. For like the jewels of a crown they shall shine on His land. This is the culmination of Jesus' work. Now, let me ask you a question to think about for a moment. What do we emphasize about salvation? When you think about salvation, what do we emphasize? Perhaps for some of us, we think about and emphasize an escape from hell. Perhaps for others of us, we emphasize the change that occurs in us, how we are no longer what we once were. Or perhaps we think in grander terms about how different the world is. You see, the problem with all of this is that we often get caught up in us-centering salvation. It's about us. What happens to us. What we can do. But you see, here we see the true glory of salvation... And the primary purpose of salvation, beloved, is not that you might escape hell. The primary purpose of salvation is not that you might be a better person. The primary purpose of salvation is the glory of God Almighty. That is why Zechariah describes it this way. 
Salvation ends in our glorification, not so that we can live wonderful, best lives ever in glory, but so that we can be the shining image of Jesus Christ, so that we can be jewels in God's crown, to His glory, so that we can shine on His land, for His glory. You see, it's because God is glorified that He has done what He has done. The saved are His people. They are the jewels in His crown. They show how great He is. This is the glorious deliverance that comes to the people of God. The end of our deliverance in the King who comes, bringing judgment in righteousness, delivering His people, is the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The end of all of providence and history is the glory of King Jesus. He is the one who should be our focus. He is the one who has done the work. He is the one who deserves the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word that you have given us through the prophet. Lord, we ask this morning that you would make us even more aware of the glory of King Jesus. That in every way as we live, we would honor him. Lord, please show us the Lord Jesus Christ. This we ask. In Christ's precious name, amen.